4, and I want to pick it up at the end of 4 and go into 5 today. Before we go there, though, I want to go back to Amos 3 for a moment and remind us of the scripture I think we're all quite familiar with. Amos 3, beginning in verse 6, says, Shall a trumpet be blown in the city, and the people not be afraid? It was a trumpet was a sound of alarm in some cases, and when you heard that, uh, your heart got in your throat, your blood turned cold, perhaps, and your neck, hair on your neck began to rise, because that was a signal for danger, of warning, and of trouble. So, when you hear a trumpet blow, you need to be afraid. Shall there be evil in a city, and the Eternal has not done it? Will things happen that God is not fully aware of and even caused? He caused Noah's flood. He caused the destruction of Israel in ancient times because of sin and iniquity unbounded. And all these events here at the end, God will be very aware of and be involved in, and he will have done it. Sometimes he uses men as his tools of accomplishing his purposes. Sometimes he uses Satan who uses men. And that would remind us perhaps of Job. You and I would, if we had the view that Terry first espoused there of Christ being, having his staff and a little lamb in his arm, uh, if that was our only view of Christ, and there are lots of different views of Christ in different ways in which he reacts to us and to the world, if we had that view, I suppose we could have only thought in our own minds that if something bad happened to Job, Satan must have done it. And yet Satan is not the one that even approached Job. God approached Satan and said, have you seen Job? Well, yeah, I've noticed him. God said, sick him. Well, God did that to Job, even though he used Satan as a tool. So God is behind all that is about to happen in the next few years on this earth. Verse 7, Surely the eternal God will do nothing, but he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. Everything that is about to happen in these next more or less 20 jam-packed years will be something that God has revealed through his servants, the prophets. So it behooves us to examine what the prophets wrote, so that we might see what God has written down way ahead of time, what he is going to do. Verse 8, the lion has roared, who will not fear? The eternal God has spoken, who can but prophesy? The things that came to the prophets usually hit them very hard. God would come at them almost and blindside them at times. It appear with an angel or with Christ himself there, and it would scare them right off the bat. They'd fall on their face, as per Daniel and various others. And the message was usually very hard and very harsh. And it was that way with Ezekiel as well. He said it's something that will taste sweet in your mouth in a way, because part of it had to do with deliverance. Part of it was sweet in that perhaps you would know what is going to happen, and we always desire that, don't we? There's an innate curiosity in us to want to know what is going to happen and how and when 
And to whom? Now, we are most concerned about what will happen to us, are we not? We're not nearly so concerned about what's happening in Sudan, or to the Somalians, or the Ugandans, or the Indonesians. Those things are happening. There are fierce famines going on right now. There are many, many civil wars in many countries around the earth. And people are dying by the hundreds of thousands and millions. And we read that on the news and or hear it, and perhaps we're upset to some degree, and we don't like to see people dying. But maybe we're somewhat inured to it, and it doesn't hit us as hard as if our neighbors and we are dying or are without food. Then's when the chickens come home to roost. Then's when you begin to get really alarmed, because we would like to know what's going to happen worldwide, but what we really want to know is what's going to happen to me to us. And indeed, being in a land of Israel, the Bible is pretty much directed at Israel, and in that sense, to us. So even God's worldview is more about right now what will happen in Israel than it is the rest of the world. And the rest of the world is satellite to Israel, in that sense, in terms of the prophecies. But God is going to let us know, and it's all written down here. All we have to do is go through and put it together, decipher it, to understand what the prophets have written. Now, someone asked me not too long ago, what's going to happen first? Are we going to be militarily uh, attacked? Or will a financial collapse happen first? Will a gathering of the church in Toto or the remnant of it at least in Toto, uh, be before the crash or after the crash? How will this all come to pass? And I want to approach the ending in Ezekiel 5 a little bit from that standpoint today. <clears throat> we have, in a way, I guess inadvertently, begun to establish a timeline in terms of these prophecies and putting it together a little better than we have in the past, even more recently. And that is coming to understand how the Jubilee cycle may affect and how very likely 2027 is the scheduled next Jubilee. Now, if the Jubilee is to come about, say in 2027, uh, I would say then that Christ would almost need to return by trumpets of 2026 because there's a year's honeymoon that has to occur before the millennium is established. And I would think that the millennium would be established at the beginning of the Jubilee year, proclaim liberty throughout the land. So Christ would have to come back at least a year before that happened, and it might be that if the scheduled return was 2026. You had a year honeymoon for the 144,000 with Christ and his Father at the throne of God. Then he would return in power and glory <clears throat> with his visage, with his uh, vesture dipped in blood, with his saints with him a year later. Perhaps the trumpets, uh, well, let's see, it'd be uh, 
did I say 2026 and 2027, fall of 2020, no. Maybe I shouldn't be back a year further. Uh, I'm getting a little confused on that at the moment. But, but he would be coming back about a year, year and a half before the millennium or the jubilee began. The jubilee, if he came in 2026, then the jubilee could begin at the beginning of uh, the year Passover. Jubilee would be 2027. So we're always off six months with the world's year, world year and God year. So I'm, I'm getting a little mixed up here. But 2025 or 2026, he could very well be on the earth, and then a year with him with the Father, and then he comes back to establish the millennium. And it might take six months to put things down and get it in order so that it could begin. He comes back in the fall with the millennium, and the jubilee actually began at the first of the year. Uh, could be 2026 or 2027, right in that neighborhood. And that also is contingent upon how much it is cut short. Because Matthew states very clearly that time will be cut short. Whether that's weeks, months, or years, we don't know, but it will be cut short. But the Jubilee itself could establish the outside time, or a year or two before that, that Christ would actually come to claim the saints from the earth. Now, moving into Ezekiel 1, we saw that it's very likely that chapter 1 of Ezekiel is set in the 30th year of the Jubilee cycle, which means that from that point forward, uh, there's there 20 years until the next Jubilee. And we're studying this in, in 2006. This could be the 29th year, very easily the next uh, next year, 2027, could be uh, 20 years from the last jubilee or the beginning jubilee of the millennium. So we have a very short period of time here, don't we? Very likely. 20 years in which much, much has to happen. Now, last week, we went into Ezekiel 4, about the 390 days that Ezekiel laid on his side, for Israel, and 40 days on the other side for the Jews, and we speculated that perhaps for the end time, and this is an end time prophecy, that began with the beginning of the colonization of the Americas, Ephraim and Manasseh, which the earliest we know of of colonies that survived was about 1680 or 1583 uh, in Newfoundland. So, if you add it up to 430 years, we're very, very close to the end of that 430 years. Now, he was to lay a siege against it those 430 days. And in verse 8 of chapter 4 of Ezekiel, it talks about laying on that side and not turning till you have ended the days of your siege. So there was a symbolic siege that went on that period of time. And America has gone on in sin almost from its inception, and that sin has been building, and I think that that siege in type certainly applies to us, because from the time we began to sin after establishing this nation, rather than going God's way, we went Satan's way. So God began making plans at that time for our end, because we were going the wrong way and would not repent of it. Now let's go on down. 
uh, to verse 16 of chapter 4 and review that briefly. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I will break the staff of bread in Jerusalem, and they shall eat bread by weight and with care, and they shall drink water by measure and with astonishment, that they may want bread and water, and be astonished one with another, and consume away for their iniquity. So, he was to have a type of a siege that would go on for that period of time, and at the end of that time, the people themselves then would fulfill what he had been portraying. He ate bread by measure. He drank water by measure. In other words, rationed out. So as soon as that siege was to end, then it would come on the people that they too would have very little bread and water and have to ration what they had in order to survive if they survived. That sets the stage for chapter 5. And you, son of dust, or son of man, take you a sharp knife, take you a barber's razor, and cause it to pass upon your head and upon your beard. He shaved himself completely bald, face and head. A skinhead, first one perhaps. But he didn't have that attitude. Then take you balances to weigh and divide the hair. So he was to cut off all his hair, off his head and his face. And then he was to divide them into three piles, weigh it all out, very carefully. You shall burn with fire a third part in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are fulfilled. So immediately upon the fulfillment of his portrayal of 430 days on his side, the actual siege would begin. And you shall take a third part and smite about it with a knife. And the third part shall you scatter in the wind. And I will draw out a sword after them. You shall also take thereof a few in number and bind them in your skirts. Now we have used this to show, in connection with other prophecies, that it applied first of all to the church. And we have seen the church scatter and divide and scatter and divide. And it's not done yet because we still have Zechariah 11 ahead of us, in which three major trees, churches, and shepherds will come apart and be destroyed in one month. So there is still more division to come. But I want to switch somewhat from that theme, since it is a process that is almost finished, and talk more about what will happen to the physical peoples, the physical nation that we're living in. Because it is what is coming next after the scattering of the church is pretty much accomplished. So let's look at this from a physical standpoint. All the peoples of this nation more today rather than the spiritual dispersal. Out of this hole of all of his hair, a third was to die, be burned with fire, military, smite it with a knife, or let's see, that would be famine and pestilence, I guess, with a knife, that will go down and explain that down in verse 12. And then a, thir a third is scattered. So two-thirds of the people of this nation will die in war and famine and disease. One-third will go into captivity. And then he will send a sword after them. So most of them also will die. Take a few in number and bind them in your skirts. 
Then take of them again, and cast them into the midst of the fire, and burn them in the fire. For thereof shall a fire come forth into all the house of Israel. So a third, a third, and a third, and then he was to take out a remnant and put in his skirt, and then, for good measure, take some of them out and throw them in the fire. That fits with Isaiah 1, verse 9, where it does say that he will save a small remnant. Not a full 10%, but he'll dip in and take some of that, and it won't be a 10% remnant, but even smaller than that. That's what is about to happen to our country and to Britain and to Canada. God holds us first and foremost responsible, even above the other nations of Israel. Let's review very briefly for a moment here why things are shaping up in the world like they are. To Abraham, he had a son through Sarah and a son through Hagar. Isaac was Sarah's son. Ishmael was Hagar's son. Now from that, God chose Isaac to work through. Now this created animosity between Sarah and Hagar and between Isaac and Ishmael. Now, Ishmael, never forget, is our half-brother. Now, when there's polygamy, and when you have different mothers for different children in the family, it generally creates problems. Because there are jealousies that go back and forth. Who gets the best care? Who's the favorite? Who's the favorite wife? Who's the favorite offspring? This happens. And sometimes the siblings don't get along. Well, Ishmael has carried a grudge ever since. That is why today that Ishmael calls America the great Satan. This is something that goes back thousands of years. Modern politicians have trouble understanding that, and they think that they can placate them and turn them to democracy and have the kind of government that Americans have. They've been against us from the time of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. Those hatreds go back that far. And for anyone to naively think that he can change that today has no clue, whatever, of past history and what God said would happen. So we boiled it down to Isaac. Then you had another problem. When Isaac had twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau was born first, Genesis 25, and then Jacob was born second. But as soon as he came out, he grabbed Esau by the heel. Now, God tells us not to despise Esau, even though they've done much harm to Jacob recently, but Jacob is the one that did harm to Esau first. Stole his birthright. Now, he gave it up willingly, sold it, but it was by duplicity and lying that it occurred in the first place. So now Esau has been mad at Jacob ever since. They are also our half-brothers, the Edomites, those who call themselves Jews and are not, who are in charge of the banks basically today, they're not really Jews, they're Edomites, whom God said would dwell in the fat places, the rich places, the wealthy places of the earth. 
So when they say there's a Jewish conspiracy, it's not really a Jewish conspiracy at all. It's the 13th tribe, Esau or Edom. I think we understand that. But this goes all the way back. So we have the Arabs, basically Esau or Ishmael, who are angry at us as the great Satan. And we have the Edomites or Esauites, who also want to destroy Jacob. And they are in control of the money today. Now let's take it down another generation, because God through Abraham worked through Isaac, then he worked through Jacob instead of Ishmael and Esau. And when Jacob had a lot of sons, they were all Israelites, because Jacob became the one named Israel. But even there, you had a sibling rivalry. There again, you had several different mothers for all the sons of Jacob. But Joseph was separated out by his father, and that created rivalry and jealousy among the brothers. And you know the story how he was thrown in a pit. Reuben barely kept them from killing him at that point. But they decided to sell him in Egypt first and at least get a little something out of him. And how later Joseph was used to save the rest of them. Now God has worked essentially in the end time through Ephraim and Manasseh. And that is primarily where the church has been. Ninety-plus percent of the church probably is in Ephraim and Manasseh. So it is through Joseph, or Ephraim and Manasseh, that a certain deliverance spiritually has been offered to people. Now, it's spread through all other tribes of Israel and around the world of the Gentiles, but primarily it's been in Ephraim and Manasseh. God held Joseph responsible to help the brothers. Now, Joseph today has not been faithful to God. So it is upon us first. Since we had more responsibility, the trouble is going to come. <clears throat> Some of you may have heard or read what the Iranian president wrote in a letter to, or said in a speech and wrote in a letter to Americans this last week. And most Americans who read that would call it a tirade against our wonderful nation. But sad to say, almost everything the man wrote was true about us. It is true that we have a government that is against the people and not for the people. It is true that it is a government that is trying to destroy our sovereignty and take us down so that the new world order and one world empire can rule. And the sovereignty of America is the key thing that's holding them back right now. So America must be destroyed. They're working on this several ways, through dumbing down our children with bad education, through opening the borders and letting us be taken over by Gentile nations from the south. They're working on it militarily to destroy our young men and women in various wars here and there. They're trying to take guns away, and now that the Democrats are back in charge, that will probably increase again. And on and on it goes. We don't need to rehash all that. But we're an ungodly nation, and our ungodly rulers are trying to destroy this nation before our very eyes, and do it to us. 
Now let's go on here in chapter 5 of Ezekiel. There is coming a time very shortly, if indeed the analysis is correct, that that siege where Ezekiel laid on his side is referring to our country from its inception, and that this is inevitable from our very beginnings, from our roots, that we did not establish a godly country. We quickly, what few there were, who may have been true Sabbath keepers and true Christians, were outshouted and paganism reigned. So, immediately upon the expiration of that time, which would come, I think, within the next few years, this nation will be destroyed. Let's see why. Take again of them, verse 4, and cast them in the midst of the fire, and burn them in the fire, for thereof shall a fire come forth into all the house of Israel, not just Ephraim and Manasseh, but all of Israel. But we appear to be the first ones that the world really wants to destroy. And there again, you can tie in the fact that we are modern Babylon. All of Israel is not, but the United States more specifically is. Verse 5, Thus says the eternal God, This is Jerusalem. I have set it in the midst of the nations and countries that are around about her. And she has changed my judgments into wickedness more than the nations and my statutes more than the countries that are round about her. Now, Israel was offered a godly covenant first and rejected it and wound up in a divorce with Christ. Ezekiel 16 shows that God says we're just like Gentiles, like our mother was an Amorite and our father was a Hittite or vice versa, whichever way it is. But he can't tell us from the Gentiles around us. And here it says we're even worse. We had opportunity to serve God, and yet we've become worse than the Gentile nations. She's changed my judgments into wickedness more than the other nations, and my statutes more than the countries that are round about her. For they have refused my judgments and my statutes. They have not walked in them. So God's summary of us today is, that we have departed far from God and even worse than the Gentile nations. So don't try, please, to defend America. Don't try to say any part of our culture and society is righteous because God says it's worse than any other culture. Worse! I had somebody not too long ago try to defend America to me. Because they're still into Chevrolet, apple pie, and baseball, and whatever else. Thinking that this is a great country. It is not. It's great in one way. It grates on God's nerves. Different kind of grace. The grace of that kind is something you walk on. Do we believe this? I wonder if we truly have internalized Ezekiel 5, verse 6, where we come to understand that our culture and society is the worst thing there is on earth. 
And we export our garbage to other nations via Internet, via TV, and other ways. Movies. On and on it goes. We're the worst in God's estimation. I guess the reason I'm emphasizing that is what parts of it do we hold dear still to our hearts? What parts do we still enjoy and revel in? And what are we willing to turn loose of? We've got to look at it from God's standpoint. The Iranian president has a much better view of what's wrong with America than do our own leaders. He has a much clearer, better analysis of it. Read his speech. Nearly all true. Nearly all fits. And it coincides with God's view. They have refused my judgments and my statutes. They have not walked in them. Therefore, thus says the eternal God, because you multiplied more than the nations that are round about you, and have not walked in my statutes, neither have kept my judgments, neither have done according to the judgments of the nations that are round about you. Therefore, thus says the eternal God, Behold I, even I. This is God saying this, he says. And don't make any mistake about it. It is me. I'm against you. And will execute judgments in the midst of you in the sight of the nations. So, while the nations are still around, God is going to execute judgment on us. They will not have been destroyed. In other words, they will still be there, meaning that this destruction on us is coming before they have judgment brought on them. Ours comes first because God holds us most responsible. And I will do in you that which I have not done, and whereunto I will not do any more of the like because of all your abominations. I'm going to do it to you, and that's it. Therefore, here's a pronouncement. The Father shall eat the sons in the midst of you, and the sons shall eat their fathers. And I will execute judgments in you, and the whole remnant of you will I scatter into all the wind. How bad does it have to be before a son will look his father up and down and say, I think I'll have him for supper? How bad does it have to be before a father will look at his own child and say, I'm going to have you for dinner? And it really boils down, boils down to who boils who first. Who strikes first, the father or the son? Who's the most aggressive? Who's the most selfish? The conditions will be so bad that it will be both ways. Even among the Gentile nations today, where people are starving to death and curling up and literally dying. And we've all seen pictures, haven't we? Of children that are just skin with bones. And they lay down and die. But rarely do they eat each other. 
We are so spoiled, so fat, so used to having everything we want, that we will not even lay down and die in dignity. But we will kill our own relatives and eat them. Mothers will eat their children and their afterbirth. That's hard for us to even imagine. Hard to grasp. But that's what Ezekiel says. Wherefore, as I live, says the eternal God, he's swearing by his own life, which is eternal. Surely, because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, Therefore will I also diminish you, neither shall my eyes spare, neither will I have any pity. God is going to harden his attitude, and he will show no pity, but he's going to bring things so badly upon us that we're willing to eat each other as a nation. Spiritually, the church has been eating each other up. Physically, People will eat each other. And it's because of our abominations, our unwillingness to obey God. Verse 12, A third part of you shall die with the pestilence, and with famine shall they be consumed in the midst of you. So disease epidemics, lack of food, and famine will follow, and a third will die of that. A third part shall fall by the sword. Military people will come in and kill a third of us. And I will scatter a third part into all the winds, and I will draw out a sword after them. So a third will go into captivity, and then the sword will come after them. Thus shall my anger be accomplished, and I will cause my fury to rest upon them, and I will be comforted, and they shall know that I, the Eternal, have spoken it in my zeal when I have accomplished my fury in them. God is furious in America today. Furious! That's his attitude toward our country. How much do we still look like our country? And then is God furious with us? You see, he was furious to the point of doing something with the church first. And in his fury, he has scattered us. Many have died spiritually. Famine and pestilence, spiritual disease. A third have died by the wars that go on in and among and between the churches. They've said, ah, it's enough of that. Died spiritually. And a remaining third survives but a sword is after that. This should be so very, very clear to us by now. And if that is clear, because we've seen it happen with our very eyes, should it not make us more aware and be able to realistically discern and imagine that it's about to happen again on a physical level to our friends and neighbors and 90% of the church? Because he says that only 10% remnant of the church will be saved out of it. But 90% and a little less of the church 
will go into what we're talking about here today. So it's not just the world out there that's going to suffer under God's fury, but 90% plus of the church itself. So it's coming on all Israel, and it's coming on 90% of the church. What will it take for God's anger and fury to turn from you and me and save us out of that tribulation? What will it take? What are you willing to pay? What are you willing to give? What am I willing to change? Some were talking before services began about various parts of their bodies that give them problems. Necks that get out of place, toes that get out of place, backs that get out of place, you know, we go through all of us and seems like we all have something out of place. I was thinking, well, most of my body parts seem to stay pretty much in place. And so the only part of me that gets out of place is my attitude. <laughs> well, that's not entirely true. I have my aches and pains and probably things that are out of place. But for the most part, even though we have different parts of our physical body that give us problems, our real problems are spiritual having to do with our attitude. And if you think that you can maintain a friendliness and a fellowship with this world, straddle a fence and have a relationship with God, you have another thing coming. Because God is furiously angry at this world. And if we look like the world, sound like the world, act like the world, you know, like the duck, it quacks and walks like a duck, it's a duck. So whatever our fruits show will be what God judges by. He judges by the fruits. So if we look like the world, act like the world, sound like the world, think like the world, indulge in the things that the world is doing, and are friends with the world, then God says we're going to die. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. He said you cannot be friends with the world. You cannot fellowship with the world. He makes it very clear in many scriptures, which I will not go into at the moment. But this is coming on everybody, including 90% of the church, and only 10% remnants, minus a little, some air thrown back. It's going to happen to almost everybody. Only a few thousand will be saved out of it. A few thousand. My estimation is seven to twelve. I may be off on that somewhat. It's all that will be protected from all that is about to happen. That's downright scary. And yet God says, don't fear them, fear me. Isaiah 8. Now, while we're in the middle of this, well, let, let's, let's read the rest of this chapter, and then I want to, to tie it together with some other things. Verse 
Verse 13, Thus shall my anger be accomplished, and I will cause my fury to rest upon them, and I will be comforted. God is going to breathe a sigh of relief when he has punished this nation and this people and this church for our lack of attentiveness to him. And they shall know that I, the Eternal, have spoken in my zeal when I have accomplished my fury in them. Moreover, I will make you a waste. What is waste? Something that's thrown away. Garbage. And a reproach among the nations that are round about you. The nations will waste us. Throw us away. Throw us in the garbage heap. In the sight of all that pass by. So it shall be a reproach and a taunt. They'll laugh and crow over it. Taunt us. And instruction and astonishment of the nations that are round about you when I shall execute judgments in you in anger and in fury and in furious rebukes. I, the Eternal, have spoken it. This is a little different view than Christ holding a lamb in his arm and his staff. But it's part of him as well. He has different attitudes, different approaches, depending on the circumstance. Even the New Testament says, some of some have compassion making a difference. Others jerk out of the fire. just depends on the person and what it's going to take. Verse 16, When I shall send upon them the evil arrows of famine, which shall be for their destruction, and which I will send to destroy you, and I will increase the famine upon you, and will break your staff of bread. So will I send upon you famine and evil beasts, or living things, or creatures, could even be small beasts like bacteria. Who knows? They shall bereave you, and pestilence and blood shall pass through you. Pestilence might be the little fellows that destroy you, not lions and tigers and stray dogs. And I will bring the sword upon you, I the Eternal have spoken it. Sounds pretty dire. When's it going to happen? How's it going to come about? Perhaps we should spend a little time examining that. Zephaniah 1 talks about a financial collapse. We've been there. And it's a financial collapse in Israel. The reports I'm reading show that our financial system is right on the edge of collapse. The Chinese and various people in the Arabian countries Russia, various ones, are beginning to sell off some of their American dollars and buy yen, or more especially, euros and gold. They don't want dollars anymore. They're becoming afraid of them. And the U.S. dollar has dropped about 5% in the last week against the euro. It's now around the buck 33. It takes American dollars, a dollar and 33 cents, to buy one euro. Uh, just last week or two weeks ago at least, it was only around a buck twenty-eight. That's only a nickel. You know, but if you've got a dollar in your pocket, a nickel isn't much. But if you're a nation like China that has a trillion dollars in their pockets, five percent of that 
is a lot of loss. And they're becoming alarmed as they see the American dollar begin to fall, that they're going to, you know, all that money they've earned by sending stuff over here and put in the bank, it's losing value. And at some time, or at some point, a panic sets in. And everybody wants to get rid of dollars as quickly as they possible to salvage something. So, how long will it take before it really just crashes? I don't know. Kurt Kerkorian, who is an investor, billionaire, sold all of his stock in General Motors two or three days ago. He owns nearly 10% of General Motors and sold every last dime of it. Does that show you something? Ford just borrowed 17 or 18 or 19 million, billion dollars so that they could lay off 38,000 workers, about half their workforce, as I understand. They mortgaged every asset they had in order to try to survive. We're in bad shape, to say the least. Well, Zephaniah says it will happen. Chapter 2, he tells us, tells the church to gather ourselves before this decree of financial destruction happens. Makes me wonder if God gathering his remnant might begin in earnest sometime before that happens. How long will it take? I don't know. Just to look at those things, it could happen in a week. It could happen in a month. But then again, it might hang on for another year or two or three. Who knows? But it's just getting more and more ominous as every day and every week and every month passes. So let's look at some things that need to happen and see if we can discern a little more of a timeline and an order of events that might occur. And I want to go to Daniel 8. And we've been here before, but I think that there's quite a bit here that if we put with some other scriptures, it's going to help us understand a little bit about what to watch for and how it may all come down. And how we find ourselves where we are today and what is about to happen next. Now, Daniel 8, he was by the river Uli, which is a tribute, tributary of the Tigris, down in verse 2. So that's the setting of this in this vision that Daniel had. So, the setting is in modern-day Iran, and, or, oh, excuse me, Iraq more. I lifted up my eyes, verse 3, and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. So, here was a ram that had two horns, they were both prominent, but one stuck up more than the other, and it's kind of stuck up behind the other one. And I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward. Doesn't push eastward is interesting, because Iraq, and especially now Iran, is making alliances with India and with China and with people in the east to send their oil and their energy that direction. 
where they're pushing is toward the west, toward us, toward Israel to the south, and toward Europe more to the northwest, although they're pretty much in alliance as well with Russia, which is more strictly to the north. But what will happen to that relationship? That might remain to be seen somewhat. But their major pacts now of people who really need their energy are India and China, not Russia, because Russia has its own. So they're not pushing eastward. They're pushing toward us and toward Israel for the most part. So that no beast might stand before him, neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. It is oil that is making those nations great. That are near the river Eli, north and east of the country of Israel. And we're afraid of them. We're afraid of Iran because they can shut off the oil flow to the west. Not just their oil, but other oil, because it all goes through the Gulf there. I was considering, and as I was thinking about this, a he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground. It was a flying thing. It didn't need to come in on the earth. It flew in. And touched not the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. This, a goat is more of a rogue animal than a ram, more aggressive. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran into, into him in the fury of his power. So he's angry, he was full of power, and he didn't touch the ground. After 9-1-1, we were angry, we have great power, and we flew into Iraq without touching the ground. We put ground troops down later, but the destruction was by air, didn't touch the ground. But I saw him come close to the ram, and he was moved with anger against him, and smote the ram, and broke his two horns, and there was no power in the ram to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Now, we've already gone into Iraq, pretty much messed it up, and we're about to go into Iran and break the bigger, the stronger, the horn that comes after I think this is referring to what is happening on the world scene right now. Therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and while he was strong, the great horn was broken, and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. We'll get into an explanation of this a little later in the chapter, but it basically comes down to this, I think. We've already flown in and taken care of Iraq. We probably will fly in and take care of Iran, and after that, we're going to have our horn broken. This nation will no longer exist. The fulfillment of Ezekiel 5 will come about. But it seems to have to happen in that order. So I don't expect to see this nation attacked until after we attack Iran. Nor do I see the financial collapse, and we'll understand why a little bit, before that happens either. Now, at that time, when our horn gets broken, we'll be divided into four different sections. 
our sovereignty, our national boundaries will be destroyed. And we'll be divided into four parts, with a ruler, a leader, a king, whatever, over each of the four parts. And out of one of them came forth a little horn. It wasn't the governor of the whole thing, but governor over a fourth, over one of them, apparently which waxed exceeding great, became more prominent than the other three, toward the south, toward the east, and toward the pleasant land. Now, the pleasant land, in this analogy, may be more to the southwest America where God's remnant is going to gather. So he'll go toward the east, toward the uh, south, and toward the pleasant land. And it waxed great, even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. So we see our nation attack Iran, then we see our nation destroyed, divided into four parts, and then one of the leaders of one of those four parts comes after the church. And a host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth of the ground and so on. Oh, in verse 11 I missed. He magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice is taken away in the place of his sanctuary was cast down. That little horn, one of those four leaders of one of the parts of this country, will set up the abomination of desolation that is a key for the church to flee. So there's going to be martyrdom of saints after this division of the country. You wonder, when, well, when does the martyrdom in Matthew 24 begin to occur? I think this lays it out for us. It will come after this country is divided up, and one of those guys is going to take it upon himself to try to destroy everyone who obeys God. Now, let's tie that in with Matthew 24, see how it shapes up there, and see if the story is the same. The disciples question Christ, in Matthew 24, about when these things would happen, the temple be destroyed, and the end come. Well, the temple of God is being destroyed right now. That's coming to pass. What about the end of the age, then? What about the destruction of Israel? Uh, they ask about His coming, the end of the world, in verse 3. And Christ answered and said to them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Now, whether they say he is Christ, or whether they say they are Christ, perhaps remains to be seen to remember our study about Emmanuel. And I think that there are two or three scriptures that make it very plain that someone is going to come and proclaim himself to be Christ, to be Jesus. And shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. So we right now are hearing of all kinds of wars, rumors of wars, civil wars. Our government won't admit it, but there's a civil war going on in Iraq today. They're not all just fighting the great Satan's warriors who are over there, but the Shiites and the Sunnis are fighting each other. And they're killing thousands and thousands every month because it is a civil war. You see, Saddam Hussein was a Sunni. And we took him out and installed the Shiites, essentially, as the leaders of Iraq. 
Most in Iran are Shiites. Have you noticed in the news lately that the leaders of Iraq that are now in charge, apart from the U.S. government, are meeting with the officials from Iran? They're all Shiites. And most of the Muslim world is Shiite. I think about 85%, according to U.S. News and World Report. Most of the Sunnis are right there in Iraq itself. So the rest of the Muslims of the Islamic world will be joining together, but they fight among themselves. So we have wars and rumors of wars everywhere you look on earth. For nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in different places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. We see all those things increasing around the world now. We've been watching that for years and years and years. We always wondered, when will verse 9 happen? Because we can see the buildup. It's been coming for decades. It's getting increasingly worse now, month by month, year by year. But when will they deliver you up to be afflicted and kill you, the church? I think we've already seen some insight to that in Daniel. That it appears to come after this nation is divided up and one of those leaders of one of the four divisions takes exception to us. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and kill you. He's speaking to the disciples here. And you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. See, 90% will not go to a place of safety when this leader of a fourth of this country sets up the abomination of desolation. They'll be left behind. They'll betray one another, hate one another, and many false prophets shall rise and deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Those in the church who will not get iniquity out of their lives are going to be left behind and their attitudes will go downhill and they won't love each other anymore and they'll be willing to betray each other to the death to save their own hides. That's what's about to happen to the church within a nation that has been taken down. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. Now notice... This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations, and then shall the end come, and it will, when the two witnesses finish doing, verse 14. When you, therefore, shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, whoso reads, let him understand, and then which be in Judah flee into the mountains. We will be spiritual Judah. And we will have to flee into the mountains. So he's giving the time element the same is when this little horn of Daniel 8 comes after the church. And the abomination is set by him. So, the destruction of church people, martyrdom of saints, will occur at that juncture. And that will be then the signal for the church to flee. Let's go back to Daniel 8 and read a little more here, and then I want to go somewhere else. Uh, I want to skip down to the explanation here. Uh, it says, at the time of the end, the vision will occur, end of verse 17. And as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep on my face toward the ground, but he touched me and set me upright. And he said, 
Behold, I will make you know what shall be in the last end of the indignation, for the, at the time appointed the end shall be. And then he explains, The ram which you saw, having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia. Those are the areas covered by Iraq and Iran today. Uh, and the rough goat is the king of Grecia, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now, what does Greece have to do with it? Very little, and we've covered this before, but I'll review it. Greece was the empire to the west at this time. And there was no empire west of that. Who, are, who is the empire to the west today? America is it. I don't think it has to do with the Greek people, but it has to do with the analogy of the western powers. What's, what does Greece have to do as a country, as a people, with end-time events? They're a third, fourth-rate nation. They have no power. I don't think that they will have any influence in that sense at the end time. Not anything major like the United States and, and Germany, perhaps, and Iraq and Iran and Saudi Arabia and so on. They're not in the mix in that sense. Now, perhaps the Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox Church will get together. They're working on that at the moment. The Pope's going to a lot of different places trying to rally all peoples to come to him. So there may be some influence there. But Greece is not going to go about destroying Iraq and Iran. In fact, we're already in the process, aren't we, of destroying the needs of the Persians. So I think by the very fact of what has happened and what we're talking about doing right at the moment shows us that this is indeed talking about the empire to the west, which happens to be America today. Because it says they'll destroy the Medes and the Persians. Well, we've already gone in to destroy one of those countries, and right now we have four carrier uh, uh, support groups and a carrier and four carriers right there off the coast of Iran. We're preparing to destroy them. And I don't think the little flap with the change in the Democrats is going to make any difference in that. Uh, they're kind of backing off and saying, well, let's talk. Well, sometimes people do like to talk before they fight. But we have every intent of destroying Iran. We cannot afford for them to survive and have nuclear weapons. We know what will happen if that occurs. We know they'll destroy Israel, and we know they'll destroy the great Satan America, given the chance. Verse 22, now that being broken, the horn is between the eyes of uh, America, whereas four stood up for it, or in place of it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. The power of the nation will be destroyed, and there will be four governors set up over what used to be. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding the occult shall stand up, and his power shall be mighty, and not by his own power, but by Satan the devil and those in the world who give him power, the new world order, and he shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper in practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. So he's explaining what we read in the first part of the chapter. That one of these four men, a little horn, 
will come against the church. And through his policy also shall he cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace or prosperity shall destroy many, but he shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. So we see a sequence then of what will happen. We saw that confirmed in Matthew. Now let's go back to Revelation 18. Now you remember the series we went through showing that the great whore that sat upon many waters or peoples is the United States today. It can't be anyone else by definition. You go through all the things that God says about it, and it cannot, there's simply no way that any other nation fits all the criteria that are talked about in Jeremiah 50, 51, and 52, and Revelation 18, Isaiah 47, and many other scriptures. When you put all those together and you ask a question, which nation, as per Jeremiah 50 through 52, is the hammer of the whole earth here at the end time? There's only one answer that would come to the minds of most people on the earth. The United States is the hammer. We hammer on anyone we want to. So without reviewing that whole series, uh, just to review that it is true, let's go into Revelation 18. It's talking about the great whore in the, at the end of, well, chapter 17, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, abominations of the earth, sits on many waters and so on, and has committed fornication with the kings of the earth. Uh, drunk with the blood of the saints, where is the church going to be martyred? Right here, by that little horn, as per Daniel 8, tied together with Matthew 24. It's going to happen right here. It's not going to happen in China. It's not going to happen in Ghana. It's going to happen right where the church is. And most of it is in America and Canada. But America is the leader of all. All right, uh, let's go down verse 15 of chapter 17. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the horse sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. We have influence around the world. You saw, and you saw, let's see, and the ten horns which you saw upon the beast, they shall hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. That would be us today reigning over all the kings of the earth. We're the only empire left. The only one with influence. You see, Iran is not going to the east. They're not pushing it, China and India. But China and India are very protective of Iran. And if we destroy it, we're going to make enemies of those people. And there's going to be a coalition against America that is going to rise up very quickly. If we go into Iran and take them out, it's going to make a lot of people mad. All over the earth. It's going to make Europe mad. It's going to make the East mad. It's going to make everybody mad.
Chapter 18, And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. <coughs> he said, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, and become the habitation of devils, and every foul and unclean thing there is. Verse 3, For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. What nation has made the nations of the earth rich? We're the only ones. Okay? They all look to the American dollar. They all look to selling their stuff in America. The Japanese do. Taiwan does. China does. Europe does. Canada. Mexico. The whole world basically looks to America. It's the place for wealth, money, trade, and business. Still, most people have wanted American dollars because they can buy U.S. government bonds and make money with them. They haven't been buying rubles. They haven't been buying South African rands. Up until now, they haven't been buying euros much. They've been buying dollars. They buy $2 billion worth of American securities, government bonds, every day. Two billion bucks. We're the ones that have made them rich. Verse 4, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be no partakers of her sins, that you receive not of her plagues. Don't be associated with her. Come out of her. If you're associated with her, you will be a partaker in her sin, and you will have her plagues fall upon you. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. He says, double up the revenge against her. Verse 7, how much she has glorified herself and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her. So as wealthy as we've been, give her just as much poverty. Okay? She says in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. Most Americans have that view. We're it. We're the best. We're not going to have problems. Therefore, shall her plagues come in one day, death, mourning, and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the eternal God who judges her. Now, I think here we have a catalyst chapter which shows that the financial destruction and the military destruction are going to come pretty much together. The one does not necessarily proceed, precede the other. One day, plagues, death, mourning, and famine. The kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning. She's going to be destroyed. And the merchants are going to say, oh no, where am I going to export my goods now? Who will buy them? They'll stand afar off for the fear of her torment, and then saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is your judgment come. God will send that judgment very quickly. Talks about a day in verse 8. Talks about an hour here. Isaiah 47 talks about suddenly. 
these things will come. The merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buys their merchandise anymore. This is the marketplace for the world. Merchandise of gold, it means all kinds of things that they sell here. Verse 15, the merchants of these things which were made rich by her shall stand far off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour so great riches has come to nothing. And every shipmaster, accompanying ships, sailors, as many as trade by sea, stood back and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like this great city? She's made desolate in one hour, verse 19. Rejoice over her, you heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. What she is about to do to us, God is going to do to her. She's going to try to kill God's people. And has in the past. Babylon has always been against God's people. America now is turning against God's people. And one little horn that comes out of her destruction will turn against God's people. Uh, let's see, verse 23. The light of the candle shall shine no more at all in you, and the voice of the bridegroom and the bride shall be heard no more at all in you. In other words, society will be disrupted to the point that marriage will not be taking place. Uh, for your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorceries or drugs were all nations deceived. Biggest drug companies on earth are here. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. God holds us responsible for much of what is about to happen. Because we have been no light to the world. We've been worse than the world. And God will destroy us. But I think the time frame here shows that our destruction, both financially and militarily, with famine and pestilence, all come together in a very short period of time. So I think you can lay out a timeline. What's going to happen next? We've gone into Iraq without touching the ground. We've made a mess there, and now we've got them fighting each other and killing us when they get a chance. We're about to go into Iran without touching the ground and bomb them into submission, or at least bomb them. And then that's going to make the world so angry that they will turn and come and break our horn so our, our nation will go into death, famine, pestilence, the sword, and captivity. Then, at that time, this nation will be divided into four parts. They'll have four governors or leaders or kings, and one of those will take it upon himself to decide that the church needs to destroy. And he will come against God's people, set up the abomination of desolation, and those who are in Judea, Jerusalem, Israel, Zion, which will be right here in this country, and I think in the southwest, and I won't go into all of that, we've been there before, We'll have to flee for our lives. And then he will, he will turn and he will go after the rest. That coincides with Revelation 12, where Satan will be cast down and he will come after the church and his army will be swallowed up as a 
manage to get to a place of safety if they don't go back in their house or anything, but run when they hear that the armies are approaching. And then Revelation 12 says he will go against the remnant of her seed. Ninety percent of the church will be left behind, and Satan will go after them to try to kill them all. And he will kill most before the tribulation is over. That seems to be the sequence of events laid out by Daniel 8. Uh, Ezekiel 5 describes that destruction. Matthew 24 fits the same timeline as this Revelation 17 and 18. So if you wonder when this will happen, when that will happen, what will come first, I think it's laid out here for us. What has to happen next? We don't have an exact time frame, but all of this appears to have to happen within a 20-year period, maybe a 19-year period, or 18, and even that will be cut short. So probably within the next 15 to 18 years, everything we've talked about today will have happened. And Christ will have returned to the earth, redeemed the 144,000, and come back to set up the Jubilee, the Millennium, for the world. So we don't have long to wait. If all of these events we've talked about have to occur, it would seem they have to happen fairly soon. You see, this we got to go to Iran, got to destroy that, then they come after us, destroy us, probably fairly quickly afterward, because they're going to be very, very angry. And then this nation will be divided up into four parts. Well, what's, what are we going to be doing during that time? We'll be dwelling in cities or towns without walls, with much men and cattle, with Christ's protection over us. And that will last through this period of time of this division of four in our nation. And sometime during that, before it ends, one of them is going to come after the church, set up the abomination, and we'll have to flee for our lives. So through the destruction of Iran, through the destruction of this country, God is going to protect his people, his remnant that he's drawn out to build a ladder temple with, by a wall of fire, a cloud, a covert over to keep the heat out, and we'll have virtually a garden of Eden during that period of time when this nation is going down, being destroyed, and divided into four pieces. And then eventually they're going to come and God will remove his protection and we'll have to flee for our very lives. And then they will destroy the rest of the church. Ezekiel laid on his side 430 days to picture an end-time prophecy. The end of that 430 years. The portrayal is over. And it hits. We're destroyed. From the inception of Ephraim Manasseh on this continent till now is nearing that period of time. It's got to be for all this to happen within the next 20 years and less. I'd say be sure you get rid of iniquity. Be sure you turn to God with your whole heart. Be sure you do not associate with and fellowship with this world so that God doesn't identify you with this world. Because if you are identified with it, 
you will be destroyed when God destroys this nation. You can't straddle the fence. You've got to serve God or the beast. You know, just thinking about that, I wouldn't want God to look down at me and say, hmm, I wonder about him. What does he look more like to you? Uh, he looks a little like me, but he looks an awful lot like the world. Put him on that side. I want that to happen. To you? Don't want it to happen to me. What we need to be doing right now, brethren, is making absolutely sure that when God looks down at us as individuals, He says, I'm going to save that one out. I'm going to save that one out. Ah, that one's going to break a leg. I'm going to flee. I try. I'm not going to make it. Once in a while, the shepherd breaks a leg with his staff. I guess that was in the announcements I talked about that it wasn't in the sermon, so then today here's this tape that wonder what in the world is he talking about. But I think we get the picture. If we're going to be saved out of this, we'd better look a lot like God and not much like this world. We have a space of time between now and the time I ran as a fact, and a counterattack destroys us and divides us up. We have a period of time here, however short, to begin to look more like God. So there's no question in his mind when he looks at you or looks at me. That's one that looks like me. I'll save that one. Because we're not talking about a long time now. We're talking about a very short period of time before these events have to occur. Because they all got to get done and wind up in under 20 years. And maybe... Quite a bit, under 20 years. Doesn't give us a lot of time. So I think we need to be considering that very deeply and going to our God with our whole heart. That's what he tells us to do. He says, when you seek me with your whole heart, it's when you'll find me. And we haven't found him because part of our heart is still somewhere else. We've got to remedy that. We've got to fix that. Otherwise, we're going to be in Ezekiel 5. We'll be left behind with people trying to kill us and maybe eating our fathers or our sons or our children. That's what's coming down. We'll either be in it or out of it, depending on what we do between now and then. 